Okay. Looking good. All right, should I get started? All right, let's get started. Okay, so today I am going to be reading from Majjhima Nikaya 142. This is the Dakina Vibhanga Sutta. That is the exposition of offerings. Thus have I heard on one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the Sakyan country at Kapilavatu in Nigrodha's Park. Then Mahapajapati Gautami took a new pair of clothes and went to the Blessed One. So Mahapajapati Gautami is the, uh, is the maternal aunt of the Buddha. And after the, after the uh, Bodhisattva at the time, his mother passed away. Uh, she took care of him, Mahapajapati. And she was his... Uh, she was his maternal aunt, but she also was his uh, stepmother. After paying homage to him, she sat down at one side and said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, this new pair of clothes, thoughts, has been spun by me, woven by me, especially for the Blessed One. Venerable Sir, let the Blessed One accept it from me out of compassion. When this was said, the Blessed One told her, Give it to the Sangha, Gautami. When you give it to the Sangha, both I and the Sangha will be honored. A second time and a third time, she said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, accept it from me out of compassion. A second time and a third time, the Blessed One told her, Give it to the Sangha, Gautami. When you give it to the Sangha, both I and the Sangha will be honored. Then the Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, let the Blessed One accept new pair of cloths from Mahapajapati Gautami. Mahapajapati Gautami has been very helpful to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir. As his mother's sister, she was his nurse, his foster mother, the one who gave him milk. She suckled the Blessed One when his own mother died. The Blessed One, too, has been very helpful to Mahapajapati Gautami, Venerable Sir. It is owing to the Blessed One that Mahapajapati Gautami has, done for, has gone for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. It is owing to the Blessed One that Mahapajapati Gautami abstains from killing living beings, from taking what is not given, from misconduct in sensual pleasures, from false speech and from wine, liquor, and intoxicants, which are the basis of negligence. So in other words, she has her precepts in order. She maintains her precepts. It is owing to the Blessed One that Mahapajapati Gautami possesses unwavering confidence in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and that she possesses the virtues loved by the Noble Ones. It is owing to the Blessed One that Mahapajapati Gautami is free from doubt about suffering, about the origin of suffering, about the cessation of suffering, and about the way leading to the cessation of suffering. The Blessed One has been very helpful to Mahapajapati Gautami. So this indicates that at this time, based on what Ananda is saying, 
Mahapajapati Gautami uh, was a stream enterer because these are the five factors of the stream enterer. That is to say, they have uh, complete conviction in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, and in the Sangha. They maintain their precepts and they are wholesome in thought, in uh, words, and in deeds. And when they do break a precept, it would be a minor precept, they immediately make a confession or make a determination that uh, they will not break that precept again. And the most important part of this is that she has no doubt about the Four Noble Truths. So this is one way to understand how somebody might be a stream enter. Of course, there's the other three, the other two fetters along with that. That is the fetter of the personality view, the belief in a personal self that goes away, and the fetter of clinging to rites and rituals with the belief that they will lead to nibbana, that goes away as well. That is so, Ananda, that is so. When one person owing to another has gone for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, I say that it is not easy for the former to repay the latter by paying homage to him, rising up for him, according him reverential salutation and polite services, and by providing robes, alms food, resting places, and medicinal requisites. In other words, by having that conviction in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, that in itself is a great thing. As soon as you come to that realization, it is indeed difficult to repay the teacher or the Sangha to, be, to what they have provided you. Because what they have provided you is, along with the other factors of stream entry, the understanding of the Dhamma to some extent, they have provided you with the possibility of no more rebirths in the lower realms. And that is a wonderful thing. That is a huge thing. And all you can do is repay the Sangha uh, with whatever you want to offer them with that generosity. That attitude of generosity is really also imbued with the attitude of gratitude. In other words, once you understand the scope of why it is important to give to the Sangha, then you understand how it affects your own practice. When you give to the Sangha, when you give to anybody with a wholesome intention, when you give to somebody with an attitude of gratitude, without any expectation, with generosity, without having any expectation of any kind of reward, that in itself is a reward that in itself is uplifting to the mind. If you think about the times when you have been generous to somebody just because it felt good, you immediately have an uplifted mind. And this is one of the recollections you can do for your meditation practice. Number one, you have the precepts which you continue to maintain. But number two, you think about all the times you've been generous. That generosity immediately brings a wholesome intention in the mind. It brings clarity in the mind, and that provides a perfect uh, situation for your mind to experience the meditation. And so he goes on to say, when one person owing to another 
has come to abstain from killing living beings, from taking what is not given, from misconduct in sensual pleasures, from false speech, and from wine, liquor, and intoxicants. In other words, when one maintains the precepts, I say that it is not easy for the former to repay the latter by paying homage to him. By paying homage to him, rising up for him, according him reverential salutation and polite services, and by providing robes, alms food, resting places, and medicinal requisites. When one person owing to another has come to, un to possess unwavering confidence in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and to possess the virtues loved by noble ones, I say that it is not easy for the former to repay the latter by paying homage to him. Let's go back here. Paying homage to him, rising up for him, according him, according him reverential salutation and polite services, and by providing robes, alms, food, resting places, and medicinal requisites. When one person owing to another has become free from doubt about suffering, about the origin of suffering, about the cessation of suffering, and about the way leading to the cessation of suffering, I say that it is not easy for him, for, for the former, to repay the latter by paying homage to him, rising up for him, according him reverential salutation and polite services, and by providing robes, alms, food, resting places, and medicinal requisites. Now he gets into the different types of personal offerings. He says, there are 14 kinds of personal offerings, Ananda. One gives a gift to the Tathagat, accomplished and fully enlightened. This is the first kind of personal offering. One gives a gift to a Pacheka Buddha. A Pacheka Buddha is a solitary Buddha. It's one who becomes self-enlightened, one who becomes um, aware of the Dhamma and fully realized but does not go on to teach. He doesn't have the interest, inclination, or capacity to teach. So this is a solitary Buddha. This is the second kind of personal offering. One gives a gift, a gift to an Arahat disciple of the Tathagat. This is the third kind of personal offering. One gives a gift to one who has entered upon the way to the realization of the fruit of Arahatship. This is the fourth kind of offering. So here one is the arahat with fruition and the other is the arahat with path. This is the fourth kind of personal offering. One gives a gift to a non-returner. This is the fifth kind of personal offering. One gives a gift to one who has entered upon the way to the realization of the fruit of non-return. So that's the anagami with path and anagami with fruition. This is the sixth kind of personal offering. One gives a gift to a once-returner, sakadagami. That is the seventh kind of personal offering. One gives a gift to one who has entered upon the way to the realization of the fruit of once-return. So that is the sakadagami with path. 
this is the eighth kind of personal offering. One gives a gift to a stream enterer. This is the ninth kind of personal offering. One gives a gift to one who has entered upon the way to the realization of the fruit of stream entry. And so that again is stream enterer with path and stream entry with fruition. This is the 10th kind of personal offering. One gives a gift to one outside the dispensation who is free from lust for sensual pleasures. This is the 11th kind of personal offering. So this could be any other kind of ascetic or any kind of monk outside of uh, the Dhamma, outside of Buddhism. And even if you give them an offering, you give it with gratitude, you give it with generosity, and that's still considered to be an effective offering. It says here, who is free from lust for sensual pleasures. So that is to say that even if it is somebody who is outside of the Buddha's dispensation, they have a certain level of wisdom. They still have a certain level of understanding, which leads them to no longer attach and cling to sensual pleasures. So they might be doing their own thing in terms of religious or spiritual uh, efforts, but they are on the way to trying to get away from attaching to spiritual, uh, attaching to sensual pleasures. So it's still a valid offering to give. One gives a gift to a virtuous ordinary person. This is a 12th kind of personal offering. One gives a gift to an immoral ordinary person. So that's interesting. One gives a gift to an, an immoral ordinary person. This is the 13th kind of personal offering. So even if somebody is immoral, maybe you don't know it, but if somebody is immoral and you still give with generosity, you still give with the attitude of gratitude, that still uplifts your mind. The whole point here is how, how do you intend or what is your intention when you give, whether it's food or clothing or shelter or medicines or anything. Maybe it's just uh, giving a ride to somebody who needs a ride to the train station or to the airport. Maybe it's just somebody who needs a smile. It doesn't matter if the person is moral or immoral. What matters is you remain on, in a wholesome state of mind. And as easy as giving, your, giving away your smile, you immediately uplift the other person with that smile. So actually, both yourself and the other person are uplifted for that moment. One gives a gift to an animal. This is the 14th kind of personal offering. So you can give to a pet, you can give to a, a dog or a cat or an animal you see on the way to ducks, to squirrels, whatever it might be. Those are still living beings and giving to living beings it provides an uplifting mind, an uplifted mind. Here in Ananda, by giving a gift to an animal, the offering may be expected to repay a hundredfold. What that really means, and this is according to the commentary, is when you give to an animal, just by sharing your food to uh, sharing your food with a dog or a cat or a pet or whatever it might be, that offering may be expected to repay a hundredfold. That means that for the next hundred existences, or at some point, a hundred different existences, you are expected to have an uplifted state of being. 
By giving a gift to an immoral ordinary person, the offering may be expected to repay a thousandfold. By giving a gift to a virtuous ordinary person, the offering may be expected to repay a hundred thousandfold. By giving a gift to one outside the dispensation who is free from lust for sensual pleasures, the offering may be expected to repay a hundred thousands a hundred thousand times a hundred thousand fold. So you can do the math on that one. Um, by giving a gift to one who has entered upon the way to the realization of the fruit of stream entry, the offering may be expected to repay incalculably, incalculably, immeasurably. In other words, there is a hierarchy in terms of how you give and who you give to. And eventually, when you give to the other attainers, whether it's a stream enterer, whether it's a sakadagami, there is a level of fruition uh, of that giving. So it would be, uh, it would give more fruit to give to a sakadagami to, than to a stream enterer, or to an anagami than to a sakadagami, or to an arahat than to an anagami, and of course to a pacheka buddha or a buddha. But we don't have those nowadays. So you know, uh, besides, you don't really know who, who that attainer is, whether they have stream entry or not, whether they have sakadagami or not, whether they're an anagami or not, whether they're an arahat or not. Regardless, you still give. And as the Buddha was saying earlier, when you give to the Sangha, you honor him and the Sangha. So whenever you give to a monastic, it's not you're giving it just specifically to that particular monastic. You are offering this as a way of repayment for the, the, the benefits that you've received from the Dhamma through the Sangha and through the Buddha. So when you offer something to the Sangha or to a monastic, you're actually offering it to that monastic who represents the entire Sangha. So they will accept it gladly on behalf of the Sangha, but they don't accept it for themselves. It's not something that is personal in that sense. It is for the entire Sangha. What then should be said about giving to a stream enter? What should be said about giving a gift to one who has entered upon the way to the realization of the fruit of one's return? To a once returner, to one who has entered upon the way to the realization of the fruit of non-return, to a non-returner, to one who has entered upon the way to the realization of the fruit of arahatship. To an arahat, to a pachika buddha, what should be said about giving a gift to a tathagat, accomplished and fully enlightened? Now he gets into a different category of different kinds of offerings. He says, there are seven kinds of offerings made to the sangha, Ananda. One gives a gift to the sangha of both bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, headed by the buddha. This is the first kind of offering made to the Sangha. This is interesting. So he says, or rather the text says, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. But a little historical perspective on this. It was really at the request of Mahapajapati Gautami, who wanted to go forth and become uh, a monastic. And at this point in time, she is a layperson who wants to offer these clots to the Buddha. So it seems to suggest then that this addition of the bhikkhunis came, at, came about later just to 
give clarification that it is for the bhikkhus and for the bhikkhunis, um, even though the bhikkhuni, the, the idea of bhikkhunis uh, didn't yet come into being until Mahapajapati and uh, other women are uh, with her requested that they, go, they be allowed to go forth. So then he says, one gives a gift to a sangha of both bhikkhus and bhikkhunis after the tathagat has attained final nibbana. So, in other words, there is the offering that's given when a Buddha is still around. It's given to both uh, the sangha of both bhikkhunis and bhikkhus when he is still around. And the second type is when he has continued on into or passed on into parinibbana. And so, after the Buddha, the Sangha still lives on. And so it is right to still offer the Sangha even after uh, the Buddha has passed on. Here's another one. One gives a gift to a Sangha of bhikkhus. This is the third kind of offering made to the Sangha. One gives a gift to a Sangha of bhikkhunis. So separately, one to the male monastics and separately, one to the female monastics. This is the fourth kind of offering made to the Sangha. One gives a gift saying, appoint so many bhikkhus and bhikkhunis for me from the Sangha. This is the fifth kind of offering made to the Sangha. One gives a gift saying, appoint so many bhikkhus for me from the Sangha. This is the sixth kind of offering made to the Sangha. One gives a gift saying, appoint so many bhikkhunis from me from the Sangha. This is the seventh kind of offering made to the Sangha. In future times, Ananda, there will be members of the clan who are yellow necks, immoral, of evil character. People will give gifts to those immoral persons for the sake of the Sangha. Even then, I say, an offering made to the Sangha is incalculable, immeasurable. And I say that in no way is a gift to a person individually ever more fruitful than an offering made to the Sangha. So let's break that down. In future times, Ananda, there will be members of the clan who are yellow necks, immoral, of evil character. So these are people who aren't part of the Sangha, but they wear the yellow robes and they uh, roam about uh, begging for alms and things like that. You see that around some parts of Asia, specifically in some parts of India. And they might be evil of evil character in the sense that they don't really follow the precepts and they'll be immoral. But then people will give gifts to them for the sake of the Sangha. Even then, because of your your pure, wholesome intention that purifies that whole process. And so there is an intention of the giver that purifies and uplifts the mind, even if the recipient is unwholesome, even if the recipient is immoral and of not such a great character. And then he says, and I say that in no way is a gift to a person individually ever more fruitful than an offering made to the Sangha. In other words, even if you give to an arahat with fruition and you're giving it something to them personally, you're saying that this is for you specifically, that's not any more fruitful 
than giving something that is meant for the entire Sangha, even if that Sangha doesn't have even a stream enter, doesn't have even one stream enter, because you're offering something collectively to the Sangha for their benefit, rather than rather than having it given individually to somebody with the idea that this will benefit just one person, it makes more sense in terms of giving it to a collective group or giving it to that Sangha that will benefit even much more. There are another four kinds of purification of offering. What for? There is the offering that is purified by the giver, not by the receiver. There is the offering that is given, that is purified by the receiver and not by the giver. There is the offering that is purified neither by the giver nor by the receiver. There is the offering that is purified both by the giver and by the receiver. Now the Buddha is going to go into how these four come to be. He says, and how is the offering purified by the giver, not by the receiver? Here the giver is virtuous, of good character, and the receiver is immoral, of evil character. Thus, the offering is purified by the giver, not by the receiver. And how is the offering purified by the receiver, not by the giver? Here the giver is immoral, of evil character, and the receiver is virtuous, of good character. Thus, the offering is purified by the receiver and not by the giver. And how is the offering purified neither by the giver nor by the receiver? Here the giver is immoral of evil character and the receiver is immoral of evil, of evil character. Thus, the offering is purified neither by the giver nor by the receiver. And how is the offering purified both by the receiver and by, by the giver and by the receiver? Here the giver is virtuous of good character, and the receiver is virtuous of good character. Thus the offering is purified both by the giver and by the receiver. These are the four kinds of purification of offering. So here the understanding should be that. When you give, give with a wholesome intention, give with the mind purified by the precepts, give with the mind that is purified by good behavior, by good character, because that purifies the offering, even if the recipient might be of immoral character, might not be taking the precepts, might be breaking the precepts, whatever that might be, the offering is still valid because it's been purified by somebody with wholesome intentions, purified by somebody who has taken and continues to maintain the precepts. So before you give, it's important to understand your intention of giving. giving. It's important to understand that you don't want to give with a, with a heart that is muddled by breaking of the precepts given by a confused mind, given by an agitated mind, given by a restless mind, given by a craving mind. Take the precepts, determine that you will maintain the precepts, have a wholesome intention, and then give. Before we finish this off, I wanted to share an interesting story. Now, this isn't from the Dhamma, but it's an interesting story nonetheless. 
And it's a story from actually the Upanishads, interestingly enough. And it's, uh, I'll, just, I'll just read it and you just get a sense of the ancient Indian ethos at the time of the Buddha and before of what it meant to give and to be generous. Once all the descendants of pa uh, Prajapati, that is Brahma, that's the Mahabrahma, the devas, the men, and the asuras, or the devas, the humans, and the asuras, lived with him for some time as students. And one day, the devas approached Prajapati and said, teach us. And in reply, he uttered one syllable, da. And then he asked, have you understood? And they said, yes, we have understood. You said to us, dhamayata, which means in Sanskrit, which means to be self-controlled. The instruction given to the devas is, it's a wondrous place being in the six sensuous heavens, and you can get carried away with ple uh, pleasures. You know, you might party, be partying all night and all day long and things like that. But the way to having better peace of mind, uh, more peace of mind and, and uh, having a more wholesome intention is to be self-controlled, be mindful and regulate the kinds of pleasures that you're experiencing. Then the humans went to Pajapati and said, teach us. And he said to them the same syllable, da. And he asked them, have you understood? And they said, yes, we have understood. To us, you are saying, data. Data is uh, another word of meaning being generous, providing and offering dana. And he said, yes, you have understood. So what's interesting here is for the devas, the instruction is to be self-controlled to have some level of regulation. And for the humans, those who are on the human plane, the way to a mind that is peaceful, a mind that is wholesome, is to be generous, is to give, and give with a heart where it's purified by the precepts. Give with a heart that has no expectation of reward, because the reward itself is the uplifting mind that arises, the uplifted mind that arises from that generosity, from that dana. And then finally, he says the same thing to the asuras, and they say, "What?" and he asks, what have you understood? And they say, dayadvam, which means compassion. The way out of the asura realm is to develop compassion, to develop loving kindness. So that was an interesting story from there, but it gives some clarity on the importance of generosity, the importance of dana. And, when you give with a heart that is purified by the precepts, it purifies that offering and it purifies and further uplifts the mind so that it is stabilized enough for collectedness, which then gives rise to a better samadhi practice, better experience of the jhanas, which gives better clarity and ultimately gives rise to panya, insight, and ultimately the experience of nibbana. So the first few steps towards nibbana is maintaining a virtuous mindset and being generous. That is what the Blessed One said. When the Sublime One had said that, the teacher said further. Now he's speaking in verse. He says, when a virtuous person to an immoral person gives, with trusting heart a gift righteously obtained, Placing faith, righteously obtained means that it's something that you have, you haven't stolen it. You haven't uh, gotten it out of immoral means. Placing faith that the fruit of action is great, 
The giver's virtue is what purifies the offering. When an immoral person to a virtuous person gives with untrusting heart a gift un unrighteously obtained, nor places faith that the fruit of action is great, the receiver's virtue purifies the offering. So even if an immoral person is giving, if the person who is receiving is of an uplifted mind, is of a wholesome nature, the nature of their mind will purify that offering. When an immoral person to an immoral person gives with trusting, untrusting heart, a gift unrighteously obtained, nor places faith that the fruit of action is great, neither virtue purif neither's virtue purifies the offering. So basically, even in that process of giving, if it's given from one immoral person to the other, neither is really uplifted by it. And then when a virtuous person to a virtuous person gives with trusting heart, a gift righteously obtained, placing faith that the fruit of action is great, that gift, I will say, I say will come to full fruition. When a passionless person to a passionless person gives, with trusting heart, a gift righteously obtained, placing faith that the fruit of action is great, that gift, I say, is the best of worldly gifts. When he says a passionless person to a passionless person gives, He's talking about an arhat. He's talking about one arhat giving to a, another arhat. Even though their minds are both uplifted and so on, they don't really need to further uplift their mind. But that's one of the best gifts. That is the best of worldly gifts, as the Buddha says. So for the arhat, there is no more coming to being. And so when they accept a gift, they're not accepting from that sense of a person. They're not accepting from a sense of a being, but rather that gift in itself is purified. That gift or that offering is purified just for the sake that it is an arahat providing to another arahat. However, they don't have any expectations anyway. They won't have an intention that may this gift provide me benefit because there is no more coming to being for them. There is no sense of being for them. They have destroyed all idea of a personhood they have destroyed all idea of a self that, if, that is affected by that. And so their mind is continuously uplifted. And so even when they're giving to another arahant, there's nothing going on except that it is a great gift. It is a wonderful gift because both people are not only virtuous, but they have completely destroyed the taints and fetters. And that therefore super purifies, if you will, that gift. That is the end of the sutta. Does anybody have any questions? Nelson, I have one question. Yes. A lay person gives dana to a noble person means he, a lay person he knows gives, the value of yeah. dana. Uh, a lay person yeah, gives ahead, a dana to a dana to a uh, noble person because the noble person knows the value of dana of uh, more effect. It will have more effect. Uh, 
it was told in the sutta for mm-hmm. the reason he had practiced to the ultimate level mm-hmm. he would gain more better merits mm-hmm. so in such a situation even immoral person how he he will get more benefits when compared entire sutta says he will get more benefits it says immoral person gets more benefits at at one instance um if i understand correctly uh, you're saying that how is it that the immoral person would be benefit from giving to uh, somebody who is moral is that your question or to a noble disciple specifically yes 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 at one at one stage it was told like that the other stage the other instance the noble person because he knows the value of dana dana means merits or anything and he will get more merits who will get more merits whether immoral person or the noble person are a lay person or a noble person because of giving dana who will get more merits okay let me let me make sure i understand the question correctly so if a lay person somebody who has a wholesome intention gives to a noble one that is to say either a monastic or in this case somebody who has an attainment if they're both um if they're both virtuous obviously then that purifies the gift that purifies the offering and that person is uplifted but in the case of one who might be immoral or of not such a great character and they give to somebody who is a monastic that gift is still purified by that monastic uh or by that noble one or that that person who has the attainment because that person the receiver's mind is uplifted but i will go uh, a step further and say because of the fact that they gave to a noble disciple because of the fact that they gave to somebody the very act of giving which is the intention of giving even if the person was not virtuous it will purify their mind at some point or another that's still some kind of karmic action at play even if they're giving to somebody of who who the receiver who is of a noble mind one who is uplifted at some point or another it will purify their mind at some point or another it will uplift their mind but what has to be understood started here is that when the giver is of an impure mind they are not the ones that are purifying the offering the offering or the gift is purified by the receiver with that pure mind but more merits are there for the noble person because he knows the value of dana that is my contention would you please agree more merits will be there only for the receiver more merits will be there for the receiver if the noble person knows the value is more virtuous okay well according to the sutta it's saying that there are levels of there are levels of merit depending upon who you give to so that seems to that seems to align with what you're saying or your what you're saying seems to align with what the sutta is uh, more merits case. are there for the noble person more merits are there for the noble person well yes because he According is virtuous he is more virtuous and also he knows the value of the dana okay 
I see what you're saying. What Brahmadharanyakopanishad also conveys. <laughs> That's what I want to convey. Okay. Well, I think uh, I think here, uh, when somebody receives with uh, gratitude, or when a noble person receives, I think the merit really, uh, the importance of the merit is really with the with the with the giver more than the receiver in this case, because the receiver, if it's a noble disciple, if it's a monastic, they're receiving on behalf of the sangha, and so the merit that has been been uh, generated from giving to the sangha rarely goes to the receiver because all they're doing is repaying the debt of Dhamma to them. Thank you. That is okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Delson? Uh, yes. Um, what, what sort of sprung to mind for me at the moment is every time that I, because my wife and I have just had a baby, so coming to listen to a talk involves me asking a question or can I go and listen to this talk so every time my wife says hey, of course no problem is that that's a form of dana isn't it in some ways like she's giving me like the gift of access to dharma she's is giving correct? she's giving you permission to listen yes yes well giving me permission to leave her to look after the baby i guess but but, but she's <laughs> giving me permission she's giving me permission in some ways isn't she to, yeah. to listen to dharma is that correct yeah, she she. I mean, you, she has she has basically uh, said, "Go ahead and listen to the Dhamma," and you know she has an uplifted mind because of that, and you have an uplifted mind because of that. Okay. That in itself is the reward, really, an uplifted mind. And then once you have that uplifted mind, you can use that for further practice. Yeah, thank you. Hello, Dilton. Hello. Um, what does it mean uh, if uh, when the gift when it says the gift is purified? Of what is the gift purified? Is it that um, all the merit that potentially comes through giving comes to 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 full effect? Right, that's basically it. So when the gift is purified, it's not like it's purifying the gift itself, but it's purifying the mind whether it's of the receiver or of the giver. So in other words, if the, the, the receiver of his, is of a pure mind, has wholesome intentions, it purifies that person. But it also purifies the giver in some way because the action of giving itself, the intention of giving itself will ultimately uplift their mind at some point or another. So the very act of giving or the very act of receiving. So if somebody is of an immoral nature, and they give to somebody who is of an immoral nature as well. Neither of them have an uplifted mind, so it doesn't really purify it. But if any one of those two or both are of an uplifted mind then or of a pure mind, then when they say that the offering is purified, it's really about purification or further purification of the mind. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Hello, Delson. Hello. If there's a um, like a small local temple or hermitage that only has one monk, and you give a gift, are you giving to the sangha or are you giving to that one monk who's there? You're giving to the sangha. The monk, the monk or the monastic is representation of the sangha. So when you give, you give with the idea that you're giving to the sangha, even if it benefits that monastic personally. 
Delson. Um, yes. I think there is a sutta where it's mentioned that one should be giving with both hands. But of course, in these modern days, one writes a check or one uses <laughs> PayPal or whatever. So I've always been wondering about how that effect would be maybe less than being able to give <laughs> with one, one's own hands. That's a good question. And I, I'll say, you know, from my experience in Asia, I think this is one thing is it's a cultural thing. It's a sign of respect. Like when I was in Cambodia, one of the things is when they give money to anybody, they, they give it with both hands. So in any case, they give it with both hands or they'll give it like this as a sign of, as a sign of respect. So it's really more of showing the reverence that, you know, here is my dana and, you know, please accept it on behalf of the Sangha when you're giving to a monastic, or even if you're offering it to another person, you give it with both hands. And so it's just representing that action is representing your intention, which is wholesome. So whenever you give with uh, PayPal or Bitcoin or whatever it might be, if your intention is wholesome, okay. that's really what, uh, at least that's how I understand it. Um, hello, if I may, I have another question that's not related to Dana. Sure. It's about, um, thank you. It's about, um, um, about joy in the third Ayatana, in the uh, second. Yes, you're talking about yeah, infinite in the second. Uh, consciousness. Yeah. Yes. Um, most of the time it's, um, translated as empathetic joy you also use that but um i i wonder if that empathetic comes not so much from the suttas but from other traditions or uh maybe philosophies behind that and if it's really empathetic joy or if it's just joy i had this discussion just today uh in a meeting with a trim friend and um we wondered What's more correct, just only joy or empathetic joy? I had this discussion with Monty as well while I've been here. And uh, this is how I would clarify it. Uh, mudita, that's really the Pali word, mudita, which actually just means, uh, you know, it is sometimes sympathetic joy or sometimes empathetic joy. But I would say when you are dealing with people, when you are out and about in your daily life, that empathetic joy is the joy you experience when somebody has a wholesome celebration, like some kind of wholesome success. When somebody graduates or somebody gets married, you immediately feel happy for them. You feel uh, joyful for them. When somebody uh, has, uh, you know, has given birth to a baby, you feel happy for them. Uh, so within, let's say, day-to-day -day life, that experience of joy is just being happy for that person. But the quality of that joy within the meditation is just that content joy. It's a, it's, it is joy, but it's, in my experience, a softer kind of joy than you would experience, let's say, with pity. 
which is a little more energetic and bubbly. Yeah. So uh, the rendering of the word depends a bit on if one is uh, in that formal, in, in that meditative state or uh, in daily life. Yeah, because the reason is it's kind of difficult to say, well, who are you being happy for uh, while you're yeah. in, in, in that experience of mudita? And that's understandable. I mean, if it helps to be able to be uh, joyful by thinking about a person, uh, then that's kind of empathetic joy. But I think what's more important in the meditation is to have the quality of the joy rather than just the trying to fight, figure out how to find that joy. Having the joy in itself uh, is more than enough. Yeah, okay. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Nelson? Yes. Uh, sir, giving to a Vipassana center, is it like uh, giving to the Sangha? Yes, it's still, give, it's still giving to the Sangha because, it, oh, well, if there are monastics there, yes, exactly. No, uh, a Vipassana center where lay people come to do courses, Vipassana courses, meditation courses. Uh, mm -hmm. Are they Sangha for the uh, time they remain at the center? The, are the fruits the same as giving to the Sangha uh, monastics or? I would say no. You're just giving to lay people. Okay. Okay. I have it. Okay. Can I ask? Yes, I have it. The first question Sujata gave food to Buddha. Mm -hmm. He accrued more merits when compared to her. That's what uh, my contention. The same thing okay. uh, uh, told in the Upanishad also. That is why mm -hmm. I, refer, I am referring again. So what are you? Uh, what is your? What is Buddha your? Buddha is more virtuous. Saying that Sujato, mm -hmm. uh, more virtuous, and she gave dana, and the dana value is known to Buddha more mm -hmm. when compared to the person who is giving. Mm -hmm. This is what referred in the one of the Upanishads, instead of Sangha. And but the question is. Question is, uh, did the Buddha receive the merit or did the Sujata receive the merit? Buddha received, Buddha knows the value of dana. That is why he got enlightenment afterwards. This is what mentioned in one of the Upanishads. <laughs> okay, I see you are, you are talking about the Upanishads. Maybe I made a mistake by bringing up the Upanishads because outside of that whole understanding of the Upanishads, uh, their understanding of Buddhism is different because they have a different view. They have a view of Atman and Brahman. The reason I brought up the Upanishads was because it's a nice story from ancient India about the value of generosity, but that doesn't validate the fact that the Upanishads have any kind of say within Buddhism because it's a completely different philosophy. It's a differently, uh, it's a completely different viewpoint. But the idea that the Buddha was the one who received the merit, I don't think that makes sense. It's Sujata who received the merit. Yes, thank you. Uh, I had a question. Would you have some suggestions yes. about like uh, recollecting uh, gen generosity, especially in the context of, of children? Because that would interest me very much. 
in the context of children, how do you mean? Uh, for example, when 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 I bring my son to bed, often we 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 try to do these like meta-like exercises of, of sending love bubbles and things like that. I wonder if you have any suggestions of doing something similar with generosity, we, we collecting generous thoughts or things that we've done during the day, something like that, along those lines. I think that's a wonderful practice because uh, that really uplifts the mind. When you think about, I mean, that's really why you do the precepts. That's really why you are generous. One, it really naturally uplifts the mind, but it can be a great gateway to loving kindness for yourself and for others. When you think about things that you're grateful for, when you think about the things that you've done in the past that are wholesome, or when you think about the times you were generous and it uplifts the mind, it's a great igniter for loving kindness uh, and then continuing that loving kindness in your practice. Uh, thank you. I'm not sure I was raising my hand, uh, or, but I wanted to ask you one question. When you have two, um, hmm, let's put it to you this way. If you have, um, there's an elderly project in um, near Ulasnagar in, in Mumbai, mm -hmm. and um, these people have nowhere to go. They're deathly poor, very, very poor, and they have no support. You know, the government has nothing for them. And if one of them was to help another one and they were Hindu, um, you know, isn't this giving itself, isn't the giving itself a helping to each other, isn't that an uplifted act? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And is yes, there is. some kind of purification going on when someone steps out of line from the way people are being treated and helps another person in some place like that, you know, and there's also a terrible, terrible situation with a lack of housing right now and many, many people on yeah. the street, deathly, deathly poor, you know, and so right. when someone makes an effort that they don't normally make in, in the community to help another one make have enough food. You see things like that. So I can't, yes. I can't see where both of the people are from an immoral background and both of them are desperate, they desperate be. poor. Yeah. And they do this yeah. act of giving itself to, to each other that becomes an uplifted act. And there's purification involved in that to some extent. Maybe you can say the Absolutely. lowest extent on the rack <laughs> if you want to, but they're both <laughs> getting very happy. You know, and the, the other thing and I want I think it's about the, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I think it's really about the it's really about the act of giving itself, definitely. But uh, if if somebody was poor and still was giving, if somebody that that act itself is is being being an act of generosity to somebody, whatever little you can give, that still uplifts the mind. So my my contention there is, if it's between two immoral people, the the act of giving itself will come to fruition at some point in time, but it doesn't necessarily uplift that mind in that moment. It's the karma of giving that will still have some kind of effect, maybe in the next moment, maybe in a couple of moments, maybe in another lifetime, whatever it might be. Yeah. But helping each other. I think the movie I can't get out of my mind in this whole subject is K-Pax. Do you know the movie K-Pax? 
It was where an alien, yeah. an alien from Mars came and they were going to put him in an, they actually did, they chucked him into Bellevue in New York. And then he, the doctors didn't know how to treat him. And while he was there, he integrated all the patients by telling one to help another do the laundry and you help her make her bed. And all of a sudden, because <laughs> they had every had something to do and someone to help, all of a sudden, everyone was cured in the whole ward, which irritated the doctors no end. Okay. <laughs> you know, also, I just wanted to note something. If you're giving a check uh, to the Sangha and you're sending it, um, Sil, what you need to do is find a two-handed uh, a two-handed emoji to go with it, so that you're you're giving two hands like this as you're that's a great idea. <laughs> and use the emoji. That's what some of my students started doing. And um, the other thing about empathetic joy, uh, or um, yeah, empathetic joy and sympathetic joy is what happened to the word altruism because the translation was altruistic meaning the strange experience of uh, not being involved with another person. And uh, suddenly that you hear the person just got into school or got, you know, passed an exam and you feel this uplifted feeling that that's what I think they're talking about. And I had a few students that really claimed that happened. And it happened to me when I went through that of, right. of having this unusual experience and not understanding what it was. Why am I so happy this person I don't even know and you know succeeded? And I began yeah. to think maybe there's something to this altruism. So altruistic yes. is the other word, the old word. And some people like it. Some people want to call this just regular joy, a different level of it. Um, yeah. yeah. It can go either way, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up, yeah, because altruistic joy is a great, uh, a great uh, translation too. Because it doesn't have to be a person that you know; it could be just somebody, a stranger. You hear, oh, you know, they had something great happening in their life, and you have that joy for them. That's the kind of joy that is being experienced in daily life. That's that's the mudita, uh, that's but then the quality yeah. of it is experienced in the meditation. Yeah, I really liked your talk. Very nice. Very clear. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Delson. Um, I have a second question. How do you know how much to give? Like, what is like giving too much? That's a very good question. You know, there was a there's a friend of mine here who who was talking about it, and uh, his his. Uh, his brother asked the same question of him, like how much to give? And he said, give until it hurts just a little bit. That was an interesting way of saying it because it's basically you are giving with an open heart and you're giving not to the extent that you go bankrupt or you go in debt and things like that, but you give a little extra, something that uh, you feel uh, you know, will benefit the other person. Thank you. You're welcome. Mark? Um, I, uh, <clears throat> I was on a retreat once and uh, someone asked the same question. And the answer that was given was uh, by a physician because you can 
give too much medication as well as too little. Mm. So his uh, his answers was that it was better uh, to give too much than too little. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to share that. Thank you for your talk today. It's been wonderful. Thank you. So perhaps uh, people have any other questions, like questions about practice. Um, I think Delson could take a few of those if anybody has something. Yeah. And I did find the two-handed emoji on Zoom. If you next time you want to use Zoom, <laughs> I put it in the chat. So take it away, Delson. Yeah. Does anybody have any questions about the practice or? anything they read in the suttas, whatever it might be. I think practice-based questions would be great because it'll really help you. Uh, Delson? Yes. Uh, lately, I have um, had quite a few like problems. So I've been trying to like focus a lot of uh, the meta like to towards myself, but um, I'm wondering, is it possible to combine that with um, making actual like progress in the meditation as well? You know, I'm trying to make it really like sincere and make the strength of the meta like the, the object. You know, almost to like overturn some of the well, uproot some of the, like the defilements that are like quite an, an abundance in, in the heart. I'm wondering if you could maybe comment on that, please. Well, I want to caution you about trying too hard. Because if you're going to, you know, concentrate your mind on the metta, you're going to start to see that you're becoming one-pointed, that metta. And then you're going to start to see that you're suppressing the mind and you might cause yourself pain uh, in the head and things like that. So I want to caution you about that. Let the metta flow wherever it's going to flow, whether it's to yourself or to a spiritual friend in particular, or if you're radiating in all directions, just do that. The defilements will go when they go. You know, if you make so much of an effort to let go of the defilements and what you're actually doing is you're having longing, which is another way of saying craving, and you have an aversion to what's really happening. in the Okay. Thank you. I have a question, Delson. Yes. Um, I've been doing um, forgiveness meditation for some weeks now. And yes, I can remember things I did wrong or I hurt people, but um, there's nothing really big coming up. And uh, I wonder how long to do this. It feels good to do it, but I'm not sure. Yeah. The, the thing about forgiveness practice is it's a great way to kind of supercharge your loving kindness. So there comes a point after you're doing your forgiveness practice that you feel just naturally uplifted. You feel naturally light. Uh, you feel like whatever blockage that might be to radiating the metta to a spiritual friend goes away. When your mind intuits that, you know, I've done enough forgiveness, everybody that seems to have come in the of 
having to be forgiven uh, is forgiven and you forgive yourself and you feel like you've been forgiven, then your mind will say, okay, it's time to go back to the practice. So you should ask your intuition and see, does it feel that way? Okay, thank you very much. I have a question. Yes. Um, <clears throat> when you're radiating in the different directions, does it matter which order you radiate in like first? And, uh, you know, like uh, usually I'll do front and then the back and then um, east, west, and then um, up and down at the end. Or can you do, I mean, does it matter uh, which, how you do that, which order you do that in? No, it doesn't matter. Uh, what oh. really matters is when you're radiating, not to push. So you have an intention of one direction and you just watch the flow of the metta or the compassion or whatever it might be going in that direction and the next direction and so on. So the the sequence of directions doesn't really matter at all. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Delson, <laughs> I, I do have another question. Yeah. I do apologize if yeah. anybody else was wanting to jump in. Um, again, with me saying earlier on that we've just had a child, so like obviously time's like quite limited, and but, but actually sometimes now I'm getting maybe an hour to myself in the morning. Um, I, I have quite a, a strong like like for walking meditation. Like, is it? advisable to try and just sit for an hour as opposed to maybe try and break that into a half an hour sit and a half an hour walk because I find that walking meditation really does help me take the practice into daily life where obviously it feels like you can make more progress in some ways through sitting practice yeah I, I would incline towards walk uh, sorry towards uh, sitting for one hour rather than breaking that up between uh, walking and sitting because you want that time you really want as much time as you can to keep the mind settled while it's in sitting meditation. I mean no doubt there is great benefit in walking meditation as you just said, which is you know you are able to infuse loving kindness with whatever it is you're doing. It's a great practice to do that. So my suggestion there would be, uh, do the uh, do the sitting practice for one hour because you want you want as much time as possible to do the sitting and then when you're doing whatever else you're doing infuse it with loving kindness uh, you know it just it doesn't it doesn't just have to be walking meditation if you're uh, taking a shower have loving kindness you're eating breakfast have loving kindness you're driving your car have loving kindness you're taking the bus have loving kindness whatever it is you're doing you're on the computer have loving kindness. If you can smile, you can meditate on the go. <laughs> Thank you. That was a beautiful answer. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, um, I have a follow-up question to that, or maybe more of a comment. So um, I remember the Sutta, the Buddha saying, of course, it's the Buddha who says this. Um, that the, the, the uh, body posture doesn't matter, the quality of the state he's in is the same. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter which, which jhana or ayatana that is. Um, and from my experience um, also, of course I respect your suggestion and your recommendation, for, but from my, my experience, it's like a walking meditation can be, can have the same quality and be as deep as a sitting meditation 
of course, not to the extent that you have cessation while walking, but up to the uh, seventh jhana, it's, it's walking, can, walking medication can be as, have the same quality like sitting meditation. Would you agree? So uh, about that, uh, you know, it's quite possible somebody can have an experience with cessation while, while walking because I've heard somebody had cessation while they were eating their food. They suddenly just went into cessation because their mind was so pure that it let go. So uh, to that <laughs> point, yes, it can happen. Uh, but uh, the reason I'm saying sitting is because there's a tendency while you're walking with your eyes open, obviously, uh, to you, for you to get easy, easily distracted. Uh, you know, you might look here and there and start to go into a flow of different kinds of thoughts. I mean, granted, yes, you can still have that level of depth in terms of the meditation while you're walking, but it really depends on the individual. So as a general recommendation, as a general suggestion, I would say that you should have some time to sit. If you had the choice between sitting and walking. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do the walking. Uh, sorry, do the sitting. And the walking you can do at later stage, but really you want that time to sit, to really settle the mind because you have one less sense input that you have to deal with. If you're walking, you have your eyes open and there is a tendency, there can be a tendency to get more distracted than with your eyes closed while you're sitting. So it just makes it easier. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you. Yeah. And I think you would not be able to quiet down the physical formations while walking. That is true. You would still have physical formations. There would still be. And whereas if you're sitting, you have the ability to tranquilize them uh, when you get to the fourth jhana completely. And that really, and that the other thing about that is if you have a le certain level of experience there are people, as I said, who just doing something like washing the dishes or eating their food or something, suddenly going to cessation. If your mind is clear enough and you, you have the experience, you could experience up to the level of nothingness and so on while you're walking. It's like your entire body, you don't have any awareness of the body. Yeah. It's like as if you're floating and the only contact you have is the feet when they touch the ground, mm -hmm. unless you're levitating, and that's a different story. But if your feet are on the ground, you will feel the contact. There will still be some contact, which is the bodily. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, I, I would think it, <clears throat> it would be also very important to the location of where you're walking for the purpose of a, uh, what, could be called a situational awareness. You know, you've got traffic, you've got other people, you've got things going on. You, you, your own safety is is could be important in that process so that it, the choice of location for the walking would be very important so that you would have the serenity as well as the safety to go into whatever level is appropriate and that you could use in your practice. Yeah, that's a very practical point. I mean, uh, it's much easier to be, for example, here in Damasuka to do walking because you don't have to take, uh, you know, you don't have to take into account traffic and things like that than it is for when you're walking down the street and you have to cross traffic. That's a very good point. So uh, the setting also matters where you're walking. Thank you. Yeah. Uh 
I, I want to say, I just want to say that I, we have had some men over the years, I think, um, that Mark and Andre can remember a certain redheaded uh, person who might be in the room right now who just could uh, not stop walking and needed to walk it off. And that is the first step of stilling the formation. When you're working with men that are hyper, you have to let them walk if they prefer the walking instead of sitting. I think you'd agree with that. And then what happens is they get to a point where they've walked it off enough and then it's time to sit. And when they come back and sit, everything calms down, you know, pretty well. Mm -hmm. and They can go into a sitting. But if you try to sit before you walk, if you come home from work and you're really, you know, oh gosh, this whole day was like this. Okay. You, you, some men just really want to do it. I haven't, I've haven't found a woman yet that really wanted to walk as hard as some of the men, but it happens, you know, that's, so that's a very good point. Yeah. 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 That's a very good point because sometimes I also will recommend if people feel agitated or they're feeling restless while they're sitting, they just need some activity in the, in the form of walking or even just running uh, just that's to, right. just to expend that extra yeah. energy. Yeah. It's worth the time too to take the time in the beginning of the retreat to take one day or two days to check everyone's posture and to to take the time to find out what they prefer in their first uh, you know interview and then uh, to watch make sure they're trained for walking looking six feet ahead or eight feet ahead at the ground and not taking a nature walk because there's training involved in walking meditation. It's not something you just say go take a walk. And we've all had it. I know Mark and Andre and I have had it. And Erwin, hi, Erwin. <laughs> I know Erwin really needed to walk, you know, and um, maybe kick a tree. <laughs> I was just trying really hard most of the time. So, <laughs> Erwin, I hope you don't kick trees anymore. There might be some tree devas in there you don't want to disturb. So, yeah, uh, well, I apologize to them. <laughs> I accepted. <laughs> Um, Delson, before before I found out about TWIM, I used to do a lot of concentration meditation. And I've I've been doing TWIM for two for a few years, but I still have a habit of like forcing and trying too hard. And I mean, I'm getting better at it. But I was wondering if you had any advice. Yeah, you know that's interesting. Somebody asked the question like, what are the two things that you see that are really uh, very common among people uh, when it comes to challenges of meditation. And one is definitely trying too hard. And the other is self-acceptance. In other words, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. Don't try to set such expectations on yourself. If you're enjoying the meditation, if you're enjoying the process, then that means the meditation is working. So if your mind is light, your mind will be clear. If you're, if you try too hard, your mind, you will see, will start to have some restlessness. In the, the pressure of the concentration practice, the pressure of trying too hard brings about a lot of mental energy. And that mental energy manifests in the form of restlessness. So whenever you sit down for meditation, have a kinder and softer approach, a, a much more gentle approach, and just have the attitude of let's see what comes up. You know, if you have that kind of an attitude and then just keep observing your, your whole, your whole 
goal here, or your let's say the whole point or the whole effort in the practice is to just observe how mind's attention moves. And then when you see that it's off its object of meditation, just 6R. Every time you 6R, you purify your mind and you bring your mindfulness much, you make your mindfulness much sharper, which means now you will be even more collected. So it is a feed, feedback loop that helps, uh, helps you to sharpen your mindfulness, helps you to sharpen your collectedness. But if you try too hard from the beginning, what you're going to find is it's going to be difficult for you to even recognize that you were restless or that you were not mindful. And it'll be difficult for you to then 6R that process because it takes more time. If, thanks. Uh, one of the things that happens is like I'm, I'm trying to let myself be comfortable feeling relaxed because it sort of it almost feels like wrong a little bit to like not be concentrating um and then so um sometimes i'm like i'm getting like like i think i'm like being relaxed but then like after the meditation like i have a headache because like oh i actually was like concentrating too hard like i didn't notice it when i was in the meditation though yeah so when it comes to having a relaxed feeling uh, there's a couple of ways to understand that. If you see, well, first of all, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with relaxing. I mean, everybody in this world wants to relax and to feel guilty of uh, wanting to relax, you know, that's, that you have to let go of. That's, that, that would be something that uh, you don't need more of, you know. Uh, we already have a lot of people who are tense in the world and creating all kinds of crazy situations because they have so much tension in it so on so it's actually a good thing to relax it's a good thing to tranquilize uh, the bodily formations it's a good thing to become relaxed and collected because of that relaxation so one way of understanding you know what does relax feel like is you know what relax feels like i mean when you tense up your your fist and you just let that go so when you recognize that there's some tension going on you recognize that there's some restlessness going. That is a point of tension that you have to just let go of. So you recognize it, you release your awareness from it, and you just relax. And the relax is just letting it go. Um, I had somebody, uh, a friend of mine, who was talking about this, and he had an interesting way of uh, discussing this. And that was, it's like when you when you take your finger and you look at your finger, your mind becomes super fixed on that finger and you lose complete awareness of what's happening outside of just looking at your finger. So the relaxed step is going from just looking at the finger to just looking at everything. It's like you're expanding your vision. If you're expanding your sense of sight, well, while your eyes are open, but in the meditation, it's like you're just expanding your awareness. You're opening up your awareness when you do. So if you feel when in the practice that the mind becomes constricted and it's just trying too hard or it's trying to just stay with this object of meditation, that's when you know that, you know, you have to pull back. You have to make less effort. You have to relax and just watch how mind becomes collected because of the right causes and conditions that come into play to give that, give rise to that collective. Thank you.
Hey, Delson, I have a question that might seem off track from this, but in a way it's not, I guess, I, because it all has to do with peace of mind and, and when you meditate, you know, getting rid of those crazy thoughts and stuff. And, mm-hmm. But um, my uh, family, or a lot of them, have this fear of the month of October because there have been a couple of deaths in our family by younger people. And, you know, and, you know, like my dad, he was in his 30s and my niece, my my sister's daughter, <clears throat> she was also in her thirties, you know, but in any case, so everybody, you know, we have this little uneasiness about the month of October. So I don't know, <laughs> I guess it's a superstition, uh, you know, so it's something to be six hard, you know, it's just that underlying thing that's there in the month of October. I don't know what you, your input would be on something yeah. like that. But <laughs> Yeah, there's a tendency for the mind to make certain kind of correlations and connections, but there's no causality there. It's just a correlation. It's just that, okay, that happens in the month of October, but there's no real truth to that. There's no real, you know, causation based on that. So my my immediate um, advice there would be to 6R that, let go of that idea, because this clinging, like, it's a form of clinging to rites and rituals when you think about superstitions and things like that. Because what oh, it's saying okay. is, on the flip side of that, what it's saying is, for example, you know, you think that you have a lucky sock or you, 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 you know, carry around a four-leaf clover and somehow that's going to change your for- fortunes or that's somehow going to change your luck. That is in violation of the understanding of the law of causation. Because what you're saying is you're going beyond the law of causation to say that if I just do this, then, you know, uh, all that karma and everything else won't matter. Um, in other words, it is effort. It is intention, mental effort, verbal effort, uh, physical effort, whatever it might be. It is that action that gives rise to the karma. So people who seem to be very well-to-do or wealthy and things like that, and it seems like you know they either just inherited, inherited it or they just you know didn't do a lot of work, doesn't mean that in that particular life, it, it, it doesn't mean that they just got it out of nowhere. It means that in a previous life, they had generosity, they had the, the purity of mind, and they were always keeping the precepts. And so because of that, it, it generated into a more wholesome state of mind, whether it's in this particular life or in the next life. So you have to understand it, that any kind of superstition like that would be a form of clinging a specific kind of view related to rites and rituals oh, just okay. let that go by six houring it okay well that makes it yeah yeah okay if i could just convince them they're not you know my sisters too and my niece yeah yeah well that'd be that's great thank you delson welcome delson i wanted to ask you one question um the um missy was um just it was like about relaxing, you know, and feeling and stuff like that. Do you think that there was any instruction by the Buddha to actually do anything personally in the meditation? Or would you say that uh, it was a direction for watching and observing mm. primarily? So Yeah, that's that's always been that's always been my own emphasis in teaching is whenever I have a retreat or whenever I tell students is there's two things you do, just observe and 6R. And by the end of the retreat, you're going to get tired of me saying the same thing over and over and over again. But it's important to know you're just being aware of what's going on with your mind's attention. 
everything else will take care of itself because of slight intention of loving kindness here, because you're generating the experience and so on. Anything beyond that, except for the six R's, then that's an experience of trying too hard, making too much of an effort. The observing, which is the right mindfulness, the mindfulness that we talk about is the bare awareness of what is arising and passing away in, re in reference to your attention. If you direct your attention to something and or rather you're saying that the attention can be controlled, then now you're making too much effort. Now you're putting the sense of self there. Now you're putting the sense of making it personal. But if you just see the attention itself as being impersonal and you're observing how the attention moves and then nudging it along with the six R's and so on, then it naturally gives rise to right collectedness, to samadhi. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'd also say, uh, you know, in India, we deal an awful lot with, one point of concentration and having them come over to experiment and find out uh, what the tranquil wisdom insight meditation is actually all about. And um, in going to the breathing instructions, if you look at the breathing instructions, there's not anything here at all from section 18 right. through, um, you know, the dyads of the whole thing that says, do something. It says, experience right. something. It says, you, you know the instructions to observe, but it's just talking about experiencing. So there really isn't anything right. it says to actually do. And being right. a being a watcher is all is really asking us to do is to watch right. the rising and passing away of the phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. It, it That's why it's such an easy easy practice. That's why it's so effective because you are training yourself by watching how the mind's attention is moving. Yeah, the mind exactly. is teaching itself when it does that. Oh yeah. If you yeah. if you try to control the situation, uh, that's where things get haywire. Basically, it just it just it creates more hindrances and it brings up more personalization when, especially when you have one pointed concentration, because they're they're trying to direct the attention somewhere, and then that mm -hmm. causes not only just pain in in the head, but it also causes pain in daily life, because now you see that you suppress the hindrances. And then when you come out of it, the hindrances come back up. You know, the, the metaphor I use is like, it's mm -hmm. like you have a beach ball and you put it under the water and you suppress mm -hmm. it and then you let go and it comes back with full force and you don't know what to do with that. Exactly. And the other thing that I found over here was that uh, if I talk to someone about, uh, uh, you know, the mindfulness being an observation and not concentration. And I keep saying it's not concentration. Instead, we started saying it's a refined, uh, it's a redefined, um, retuned form of concentration with specifics. And then they settle down, <laughs> you know, but they get so <laughs> upset if you say that I've been concentrating, you know, for 15, 20 years and I, I have to do this, you know, and then they think, don't, you can't take concentration away. I'm not taking it away. I'm <laughs> refining it and retuning it. And then they settle down. It's just kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> that's the that's the sneakiness of uh you try. <laughs> you try um there was one other thing if you're if your people are afraid uh, for october you go and read you know read the um the sutta mn 131 the badarakata sutta 
and give up the past for the month of October and give up the future worry and the concern for the past and take, take a turn, maybe take a turn living in the present time, just yeah. as a little crystal ball, a crystal carriage carrying you through the month of October. The kids will love the story. They do here anyway, to just be able to not think about COVID forget what happened in the past, let go of all of the grief and things that we've dealt with over here. And um, it's still going on here. It's not the same as in the States at all, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, but 131 is really helpful uh, to yeah. look at the present time. And um, there's specific in the prose in that one poetry. If you can, do you, I don't know if you have the book. It's really the short poem that it's is the, the one first. fine night the one um, fine night you're talking about uh it's um what that's right yeah wait a minute it's it's uh what is that that's right here but i didn't know if you had the book sitting there let not a person revive the past or on the future hold his hopes for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached Instead, with insight, let him see each presently arisen state and let him know it and be sure of it invincibly and unshakably that this pure mind, this, this clear mind really exists and just keep relaxing and watch and it gets fun. It gets really fun. <laughs> Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Nelson? Yes. Um, so I answer. Yeah. You talked about um, just observing the movement of the mind. And I was wondering how the object of meditation fits in with that particular. Yeah, um, yeah there, there is some level of right effort, which is to say, what you're doing is you're observing how mind's attention moves. So that's the mindfulness part of it. The initial application of thought which is to ignite the loving kindness, to intentionalize the loving kindness. That then is your object of meditation and you are, you're observing the object of meditation and then you're observing, in this, in this sense, you're observing the loving kindness or you're observing the flow of loving kindness, your spiritual friend or in radiating or whatever it might be. And then while in that process of observation, the mind might get detracted from its object. It might just go to somewhere else. So in that process of observing, your mind is open enough to be able to catch that uh, there has been a distraction, that there has been a hindrance. So really the, the, the starting point is observing, but in the way of observing where the observation itself or the attention itself strengthens the collectedness of mind. So the more you're able to observe the loving kindness, so you bring it up in the beginning, that's the first jhana, you bring it up with the intention of loving kindness, with a verbalization or whatever it might be. But once you have it, then you're just watching it and then you're just observing it. And eventually the mind becomes collected the more you observe it. So the two things that you're doing really are the observation, which is the mindfulness of that uh, object. And the second is the six R's, the right effort. So when you see the mind is distracted, you let go of that distraction, uh, so you recognize it, you let go, you relax, and then you re-smile to uplift the mind, and you come back. So there is that right effort of coming back to 
observing the object in it. Because um, in the instructions from Bonti, my understanding is that there always is an object of meditation. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's uh, loving kindness, compassion, or any of the Brahma Viharas or quiet mind, there is still an object there that you're just observing. And the object's um, purpose is when the mind drifts, then you collect it by returning to the object. So, yeah. So I just wanted to clarify that because yeah. what you were saying was just observe, but there is always kind of a touchstone for the observation. Yes, yes. that's a very good, that's a very good addition to it because the, the, the whole point of the, as you just said, the whole point of the object is to keep the mind tied to something. So the way I kind of look at it is like the, it's like a, a, a rock that uh, is, the string is tied to it and it's like a balloon. So it might go away from its object, but then it comes back with the six R process. Um, and so when we talk about the unification of mind, for example, the ekagata that's said in Pali, it's really that the mind or the attention is no longer scattered by it. So even if it gets, if it gets uh, askew, if it gets detracted, there is something to return to, which is the object that you said. Yeah, okay. I was looking for the anchor. Anchor, you see the anchor in the one point concentration got really serious because you had to tie yourself to it and fix on it. And think what I've run into, Delson, is people come actually think that that object is going to give them the answer to Nibbana. It's very serious. We actually ran in, Bonte and I ran into a woman in Australia, and I had asked him the question in the morning, does it ever occur for a breathing meditation to believe that the breath is so important if I don't pay attention to it that I can't breathe? And then that day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, two 40-year-old women came in and said, we cannot do metta. If we do not pay attention to our breaths, we will not be able to breathe. And they actually believed it. I was shocked. And then that's, that's really it's fascinating. It, no, I mean, <laughs> and yeah, then, and that's like the extreme form of one-pointed concentration because the whole yeah. point of one-pointed concentration is I become the meditation object itself. So my my existence, my personality is now tied to the object of meditation, which happens in yoga, which is the the, the unification or the union of the Atman with the Brahman. But That's a very extreme form of that. Yeah. But we're different with our position. We actually, Antra, we, we had a, we had a, a retreat in 2017 for 35 people in Pohang and uh, Malaysia. And we spent three days trying to determine if there were laws for meditation. And one of those laws, what, what is the law that is absolute concerning an object in meditation. So you have to ask the question, why do all meditations seem to have an object of meditation? And Delson, you said it, it's like, it's, a, I said it's like an anchor. I draw a picture of an anchor with a boat in a harbor and it can't float away. So now it's safe to go to bed for the night, but you're always going to be in that vicinity. But you can't, you know, if we say tie me to it, it's buying into the one point concentration. You have to be careful with that one. And, 
And because and the other thing is you can't blame a teacher for this. You can't. If you're sitting over here, these teachers are in front of 125 people or try try the big the big one at 5000 people and a teacher is teaching at something. There's 5000 brains in front of you and you say something even when Goenka said it. I, I read, listened to many of his talks are just fine, okay, but, but, <laughs> okay, he's giving instruction maybe the right way on a subject to 5,000 people, and how do each brain hear that? You can't go around right. and figure that out, you see. It's right. a stymied thing for the teacher, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the object of meditation is important, obviously, for the meditation. I mean, the whole definition of meditation is that you have something that the mind is thinking about. I mean, the very, very general, basic definition of meditation. Hmm, we seem to have lost Delson. He's frozen. Meditation, which is brought up. Your there is an object of meditation. Oh, can you? Okay, you're you're back now. Oh, okay, all right. What I was saying is the, the 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 whole point about the meditation. I mean, the general definition of meditation is that the mind, as something that it collects itself around, so to speak, the attention is collected around something, but. The whole point here is to see that you don't become your object of meditation. You and even the intention of loving kindness, even the intention of compassion is not your intention. And this might, this might go over some people's heads, but when you get deeper and deeper into the practice, you see that even intention is impersonal. And you don't take the jhana, you don't take the meditation personally. It's all happening because of the right causes and conditions coming together. So the observation helps to keep that distance of self in that process. And the 6R helps to keep the mind, let's say, collected or, or uh, unified, not to the extent of becoming it, but unified as a way of keeping the mind clear. The whole point is to bring the mind to a level of clarity and depth so that insight can arise. Because if you become one-pointed one and you suppress, as I was saying, you not only suppress the mind and the hindrances, but you suppress the opportunity for any kind of insights to arise naturally. Thank you, Delson. Uh, let me jump in here. We, uh, we have been doing some interviews with Delson over the last uh, week or so. And I'm going to make some videos out of all those things. And we get into some really deep Dhamma stuff. We get into some upcoming neuroscience research that Delson has participated in. And we talk about dependent origination. We talk about Naroda, cessation. I mean, you name it, we're getting into it. And the first video where Del Delson introduces himself and his background and gives us a thumbnail sketch of the jhanas and so on. Uh, that's going to come out tomorrow at 1 p.m., same time that we started this uh, video here. And I'm just putting that I am putting that in the chat 
so that you can get a link to that. But tomorrow at 1 p.m., uh, that'll be our first uh, release of these interviews. And there should be a number of them to follow. And of course, we will have a recording of this uh, Zoom call up as well. So let's take a few more questions. And uh, I think we're getting pretty long here. Uh, anybody else got a few more or one more? Mark. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, offer, you know, kind of like a metaphor for really deep practice uh, in a sense of looking of, of, uh, of you had the balloon in the water and it made me think of like a, uh, uh, a, a very small bubble at the bottom of a swimming pool where consciousness is coming into formation. And as the bubble rises, it gets larger and larger and larger and it's, and it's easier and easier to see. And so in the process of practice, we're seeing these large thought bubbles take place. And as the sensitivity grows, mm -hmm. you see them at a earlier and earlier level or a smaller level. And so the, the practice becomes watching those formations maybe at a tiny level and then maybe six Ring at that time. But the, the metaphor of the bubble in the pool was, is one that people can relate to, and I, I, I find it very useful. I wanted to share that. That is very useful. Thank you for that. And then there comes a point when there are no bubbles at all. And that's the cessation. Oh, you went on mute. You went on mute there. Hey, please. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah, I have another question. Um, thank you. Um, about um, uh, the English terms of like unification uh, of mind or uh, collectedness. So I always wondered, since, uh, and, and on the other side, also the suttas, we hear uh, the mind being scattered uh, outwardly or externally. Um, so this collectedness or unification or scatteredness, it implies that there is something that can be at different places at the same time. Um, but like, isn't it that mind's attention uh, can only be with one thing at a time? So there is nothing that can be collected or um, unified because there is only one thing at a time. And, uh, and also, doesn't it mean that it's more like calming I'm down? I'm sorry to interrupt, but my internet just went down for a second, so I didn't hear the whole flow of the question. Can you please... Again. <laughs> that's perfect sorry <laughs> that's perfect yeah it's about uh you mentioned it ikagata and yeah. uh in english we we say uh, collectedness mostly we don't use concentration of course but we have collectedness or uh unification but actually there isn't anything that is that can be scattered or unified because mind's attention can only be with one thing at a time so mm -hmm. is is isn't it kind of misleading to, 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 to think of it as something that can be collected or unified? And isn't it more, uh, proper, uh, more, more um, useful to think of it like calming, calming down or 
becoming tranquil, like my, the movement of mind's attention is calming down. I like that interpretation. That's a very in good interpretation because you're right. The attention can only go to one object at a time. It just feels like the mind is scattered. It just feels like the attention is scattered. But what you're really doing is you're redirecting the attention back to its object. So I like that idea of tranquilizing and relaxing because then that's just calming down the, the mental energy of the distractedness in and bringing it back. That's a good way of putting it. I think it helps other people understand as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I think uh, it also depends on when you look uh, at the term ekagata, how you break it up. Uh, eka means one, but ekaga is tranquility. Right. right. And calmness. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Always wanted thank to ask that. that question. <laughs> Great. Going once, hey, David. Uh, David, I have a question yeah. for you. Can I ask you a question? <laughs> what is no, the no, sutra? I don't take <laughs> I know you're the one person that might know, but Delson might know too. What is the sutta about scattered internally or externally? Do you remember, Delson? Yeah, I know what you're talking about, but I. That's what. Well, that's what the sutta. That's the sutta. It, it explains what it means to be scattered externally is that your mind won't stay in and in, in watching. See, when when you have an you're sitting you're sitting here, okay, and you're watching here with a peripheral vision inside, and then you can't stay there, and you keep going outside of this boundary, outside towards towards hindrances and other thoughts and everything. That's a scattered mind externally. But I can't remember, David, what did it say about the scattered mind internally? Remember, we used to do that sutta a lot. Bhante's uh, done it a lot. Is that the Upakalesa Sutta 128? No, no, it's not 128. Um, it's not 128. That's um, different. A, a scattered internal, and I'm trying to remember the name of it. I can't remember it. But there is, is one that Satipatthana? No, no, it's yeah. in the Madhima Nikaya, and it's in the 50s or the early hundreds. And I'm trying to look at it. I can't figure it out what it is. Wait, well, there's, there's 138, which Bhante um, Let me try that. talks about restlessness. Okay, wait a second. That, that was, It'll, well, I mean, there's something related to that. There's something related to that, which talks about a mind or an attention that is non-dispersed. And from that, I interpret it as saying unscattered, meaning the mind doesn't doesn't become swayed here and that, there by some yeah, kind of distraction. That, that's right. It wasn't 138. I'm, hmm. No, it's just a bit longer. Wait a minute. Is um, Here you go. I got it. I got it. Udesa, Udesa Vibhanga Sutta 138. Okay. And, and, it has, and, and what it has is scattered externally or stuck internally. And the cause is craving. Keeping attention on the distraction is a bad thing, you see. And it talks no. about uh, distracted and scattered um, externally. And then it goes over and says not distracted or scattered externally. It gives you an explanation at section 11, 10 and 11. That would help someone who thinks they're, you know, what we were just what you were just talking about 
If you go back yeah. to that. Uh, that's Majima Nikaya 138, you said. <laughs> no, it wasn't 138. Wait a second. Uh, it's... Um, and it's the one about agita agitation is what this is about, agitation. What did I say it was? Did somebody hear me say what Udesa, it was? You said Udesa Vibanga Sutta. So Udesa Vibanga? That's what I'm trying to find it again. <laughs> this it's is page 1,075. Uh, yeah, 1,074 1, is Udesa Vibanga, the exposition of a summary. Hint, it's the topic is hindrance management, at agitation and non-agitation. It's a really good one to read about uh, the hindrances. Very, very good one. Yeah. And, and the stuck internally... The stuck internally, I, I would say, is uh, the way I interpret that is not to take the meditation seriously. It sounds really counterintuitive, but it's basically not to make it a big deal. Just let things flow and let things just happen yeah, when your I would mind say becomes that, collected. That's going along with what it's saying. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Not stuck internally is when you're doing, you're sitting and calmly doing it. Yeah. Going through the jhanas. Mm. Okay, I think that's uh, I think that's a wrap. Yeah. What does everybody think? All right. Yeah, any last questions or all good? All right, we have a thumbs yeah. up. Okay. Going once, going twice. Okay, it's a wrap. Thank you very much, Delson. Uh, topic today was about giving, so go and give and give often. So, thank you. <laughs> From Damasuka Productions. Goodbye. Thank you. Good Bye. Luck. Follow those precepts. Thank you, Delson. Thank you. Thank you, Delson. Thank, Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.